0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast that explores the theology of the coronation rite, devised by William Gulliford and hosted by William and Anders Bergquist, produced by me, Emily Koltveit. This is The Crown Uncovered. Welcome to the constitutional episode of The Crown Uncovered, the podcast which endeavours to make sense of the coronation rite for those in and connected with the Church of England as it prepares for the coronation of King Charles III on the 6th of May 2023. Archbishop Geoffrey Fisher introduced the 1953 coronation with the promise of two climaxes, the spiritual and the visual, the anointing and the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Indeed, arguably, the televisual age was born with the broadcast of what took place on the 2nd of June 1953 – the spiritual and the visual. The anointing was not relayed to the millions who watched. The crowning remains the abiding memory of that day. Beyond these climaxes, there are very considerable constitutional questions which cannot be ignored. The Church of England is by law established – The king is supreme governor of it, the heir of one of his predecessors who created it. A civil war, a revolution in 1688, and Scottish uprisings that followed have meant that the Protestant, strictly non-Roman character of the Church of England has been hardwired into the overlapping institutions of church and state. And yet, society in 2023 can hardly be compared with the societies of 1937 and 1953, what to make of this, and for the established church host of this rite, what must be borne in mind as we move forward towards this new sacring? We're delighted to welcome Dr. Bob Morris from the Constitution Unit of University College London. Dr. Morris has published through the unit two key studies in October of last year. First, the coronation of Charles the Third, and the second, swearing in the new king the accession and coronation oaths. And the unit's head, Professor Robert Hazel, recently published his paper, Future Challenges for the Monarchy, which helpfully describes the precise legal position of the monarchy today. They are absolutely fascinating studies, and for anyone interested in the constitution, they, of course, required reading. The aim of this podcast is to illuminate the significance of the coronation primarily as a religious ritual, but it is inescapable that it's part of the complex series of events which publicly hail and even legitimate a new reign. We've not had one for 70 years, so its context is very different from 1953. Not unlike the coronation of King Edward Seventh in 1902, what happened last time is a distant memory. The difference between 1902 and 2023 is that the televisual record of the last one is much clearer, But the world and country are very different. To explore the significance of these constitutional questions, I'm so grateful to Dr Morris for being with us. Bob, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and career and what gives you this particular interest in constitutional issues and their relationship with the church?
1: Yes, well, I'm a 1940s scholarship kid. I went to school in Birmingham, one of the grammar schools in Hansworth, And I was a chorister in the parish church, which no longer has a choir. And then I sang in my chapel choir at university. And subsequently, I sang in St. Albans and Holborn. Um, My work was in the Home Office, which I joined in 1961 after military service. And uh, I was concerned in my last uh, post, uh, right at the end, uh, in the 1990s with the uh, remaining constitutional responsibilities that belong to the Home Secretary. Uh, These were things like the um, Crown Dependencies, Channel Islands, the Isle of Man, but they also included a number of things relating to the Church of England, particularly its legislation and the work under the 1919 Act, plus uh, responsibility for certain royal matters. And uh, my predecessors have been active in coronations and so on and so forth for a variety of reasons. So that was one of the things I took uh, with me when I went to work in the uh, as a volunteer in the Constitution Unit in UCL. And the then director and I developed um, a series of studies about the monarchy in its current form, uh, including, as you mentioned, uh, particular attention recently to the coronation and the surrounding oaths and so on and so forth. So that's me. And do I gather you had a brief spell at Lambeth Palace? Yes, I did. Yes. After I retired, um, I was asked to go and work for Archbishop uh, Carey as the sort of locum uh, public affairs secretary, uh, dealing with parliamentary and other sort of public business um, and so on and so on, which was a most illuminating assignment, may I say. <laughs> and I subsequently acted as the secretary to the Herd inquiry into the role of the Archbishop. Uh, to uh, uh, collect thoughts, really, about the role of Carey's um, successor. And what's the role of the Constitution Unit at UCL? Well, until the Constitution Unit became adopted by UCL, UCL had, rather surprisingly, no politics department. <laughs> so, in a sense, the Constitution Unit was the little kernel in the nuts and so on and so forth, and... It's grown and it is now, uh, the unit itself is part of the School of Public Policy at uh, UCL. The origin was that uh, the first director, Robert Hazel, um, who was a former Home Office colleague, although we never worked together, had left the Home Office to uh, uh, run one of the large grant-making bodies, the Nuffield Trust, and he'd uh, noticed that uh, the Labour Party had accumulated all sorts of constitutional policies in its opposition but it had seemed to have done no detailed work on them so he tried to fill that gap uh doing it in a non-partisan way and they had an understanding with ucl in that case and uh, that transferred into a permanent base at at ucl later
0: so a non-aligned think tank
1: yes 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 Very interesting. Um, how,
0: if we move into the area of the, const- of the constitutional relationship with the coronation, how do you react to the statement, which we often see in the press at the moment, that England has no constitution, we have a coronation? And I use the word England advisedly because it is an English right.
1: Yes, often forgotten um, <laughs> and, and uh, often used as a synonym for what is actually the United Kingdom. Um, yes, well, um, of course we do have a constitution. We don't have a codified constitution. And we share that with Israel and New Zealand as a matter of interest. Um, there have been attempts more recently to set down the uh, relationships. The Cabinet Manual, for example, which was issued in uh, 2010, uh, was an attempt to do this, so there should be no misunderstanding how a succession of government would be organised uh, when a minority government was expected but didn't arrive. Um, and uh, the coronation, yes, well, it is an English right. But, of course, it was also a Scottish <coughs> right. Um, but uh, there was never uh, the same sort of right in Ireland or in, or in Wales. And, um, as you know, of course, it the, the first uh, all-England event was in 973 with Edgar being crowned in Bath Abbey, uh, according to a right... Uh, proposed by St Dunstan, uh, the essential elements of which remain, Um, and uh, we wait to see (laughs) how they (laughs) will be articulated on this occasion.
0: Might you talk us through some of the stages in planning a coronation? Who who does
1: what? Yes, well, in the past, that is, in the relatively recent past from 1902, there was a, a, a... setting up of formal committees, um, a, a coronation committee and an executive committee. Uh, the Lord, uh, um, the, the Earl of Marshall was of course a member of both, but the uh, upper tier in 1952 was chaired by the Duke of Edinburgh um, and the Earl Marshal Marshall chaired this, the next one. We have not heard any announcement relating to whether they've Uh, 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 re-burst, as it were, that structure. Indeed, what seems to have happened is that it's all been sucked into the Cabinet Office, who are perfectly capable of managing these things, may I say, but uh, there's not the external um, flummery, perhaps, of the formal uh, committees that we've had in the past. Um, Whether the air has been involved in any of this is not known. Uh, I'm not sure with anybody's asked, but we certainly have been told. So it's a mystery, really, how they're organising this. Um, But the way in which uh, there's no longer a court of claims, and that has been uh, subsumed into the Cabinet Office, suggests that it's all been orchestrated by the Cabinet Office.
0: Tell us a little bit about the court of claims. It sounds wonderfully medieval.
1: (laughs) Well, indeed it was. Um, Certain uh, hereditary peers at uh, past coronations performed certain services for the monarch, They handed him spurs, they might have handed him armills and so on and so forth. And these ceremonies, uh, also to assist him, for example, into the enthronement and so on and so forth, were performed by specific peers. And the Court of Claims uh, was there. It was an august body, chaired by the Lord Chancellor, with very senior judges to assist him. And um, it issued a notice to say uh, all those who have claims to perform these services um, should submit them to us and we will judge upon them. This wasn't very difficult in um, 1937 because they'd already done that for uh, for uh, Edward VIII who of course didn't proceed to coronation. But these were elaborate uh, petitioner type documents, um, lovingly sealed and uh, written, you can imagine. (laughs) Um, But it was entirely administrative, not a judicial process. And uh, essentially, one had to show one's pedigree and prove, therefore, the claim that you had for a particular service.
0: Um, could you help us just distinguish between the some of the parties who we think will be present, and not least the Lord's spiritual and temporal, and whether all the Lord's temporal will be there? We assume the Lord's spiritual probably will, given it's a Church of England ceremony, but...
1: Uh... Well... Um... Uh, perhaps uh, people haven't quite grasped one of the effects of the House of Lords legislation. Uh, people have grasped that only 90 hereditary peers now sit in the House of Lords, elected from their own number, plus two other hereditary officers, the Earl Marshall and the Lord Great Trimbley. Um Perhaps they haven't understood that what the Act did, amongst other things, was remove any absolute right for any peer to sit in the House of Lords, a hereditary peer. So the claims such as they have, I mean, are not limited by the 90. I mean, it is a much more absolute um, expulsion, if you could say, uh, than that. I imagine that there will be some sort of uh, ballot uh, which will have to take place. Um, perhaps the uh, Church of England could manage that rather more decorously in relation to bishops and archbishops. <laughs> Uh, but if one is reducing the size of the um, congregation from 8,250 people, extraordinary numbers, crammed into the Westminster Abbey, with tiers in the nave reaching 11 tiers high, um, then uh, reducing that to just a little over 2,000, which is the normal capacity of the uh, uh, Abbey, then uh, some people, a lot of people, are going to be disappointed. And uh, perhaps the hereditary peers are going to be disappointed more than many others. Um, the baroness, for example, was extremely disappointed. They started off with 25, 24 seats, and so they were reduced to two. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Would you say that the coronation is properly a church or state occasion?
1: Well, there are joint features. Uh, the state pays for the coronation... Uh, all the costs of the coronation. Um, But um, from the constitutional point of view, I suppose one would say that, uh, politically, as it were, um, the coronation symbolises the um, joint venture of governance between the church and the state. The church, in medieval times, being much larger than the state, one has to remember, and... um, of course, that relationship has changed over time, and it would be fascinating to see how it's reflected on the, the forthcoming occasion. Um, but in that sense, um, the, the country was ruled jointly by the executive, on the one hand, the king and and the church. And the church looked after certain areas of social and legal policy, for example. Um, most of these responsibilities disappeared in the 19th century, Um, but the church courts survive.
0: Indeed, those of us that have to deal with faculty applications know all too well. Uh, There are oaths which have to be taken by the monarch at different stages of their inauguration, three, I think. Could you take us through them and their
1: history? Yes, the the first oath that the king has to swear, which he swore at the Accession Council, uh, is the one required by the uh, Union of Scotland Act in 1707, and uh, the uh, negotiators, the Scottish negotiators in the Scottish Parliament were adamant uh, that in the joint uh, monarchy that was being prepared for, there should be a clear uh, affirmation from the ruler that uh, he supported uh, the Presbyterian former church government in Scotland. And that is the very first oath that he, he swears It's been published for the first time. It's no no great secret, but it it was published in the account. And um, the second oath that he is required to uh, swear is required by the um, Bill of Rights Act, uh, 1689, Um, and its original formula uh, was a lengthy diatribe against transubstantiation and all things Roman Catholic. Um, Edward VII gibbed uh, at this uh, because he's very conscious of how offensive it would be to his Irish subjects mm, mm. and others uh, Roman Catholics throughout the empire and um, alas there wasn't time to deal with it before the, the coronation which was of course affected also by a delay following his illness um, but George V made it quite clear that he wasn't going to um, uh, be crowned unless um, the oath was altered And so the current uh, text, which is a much leaner sort of ten-line affair, was uh, legislated by Parliament in 1910 in the um, uh, the Oath uh, Act of that year. The uh, last oath, of course, is the... I should have mentioned also that the Protestant Oath, as it's called, um, has to be sworn by the king either on the uh, first opening of Parliament... ...or at his coronation. In this case, I think the king will be swearing it at his coronation. At which, of course, he swears the coronation oath... ...which is a three-part oath... uh, ...legislated in the uh, Coronation Oath Act of 1688. Formally, it requires Parliament to change the wording... ...but the wording has been changed... ...because of the great constitutional changes... (laughs) ...over the last 300 and so years... Um, Uh, The Lord Chancellor explained this process as one of implied repeal. Um, One could no longer talk about um, uh, dominions when, of course, the number of dominions had grown and so on and so forth. How did one incorporate that? Uh, uh, And how how did you do that? Um, Of course, the oath um, shows signs of its age. And in this ecumenical age, the third part of the oath is a very strident uh, um, commitment uh, from the monarch to support the Church of England and all its privileges. And I think this is something which has troubled Anglican clergy for some time. Um, But I don't expect any alteration to be made um, because... um, I doubt there could be agreement on what should replace it.
0: (laughs) And the king, on the the day he made his speech, was very clear about his commitment to the Church of England. Indeed,
1: and in most important event, on the 16th of September, he had a a reception for faith leaders and made clear his own religious commitment. Um, He was criticised, of course, because he included uh, his respect for other religions and indeed people for no faith who followed um, secular ideals, um, because I suppose it was said that if you uh, somehow respect other religions, then you don't have any one of your own. Uh, this seems to me a very peculiar sort of interpretation of his position. I cannot see how any head of state could not speak as the king spoke on that occasion.
0: Thank you. I don't know if you've come across Grace Davies' uh, proposal that the Church of England is, as the established church, a weak agent in society, and that is actually a healthy place for the Church of England to be, rather than the overarching um, national church, uh, state church, as the established church, it acts as host to issues of faith in society. Uh, I don't know if you
1: Yes, yes. To to well, um, this um, and belonging without believing and so on and so forth. Yes, uh, I'm aware of her interesting work. Um, and it's a very consoling uh, view, <laughs> of course, about uh, the, the state of the establishment, sometimes called weak establishment, um, as having those benefits. Um, but this is not always the view of, of course, other denominations, Christian denominations, um, some of whom have called it... Um, what do they say, Um, a word I slips my mind now, um, but uh, something condescending. (laughs) And And it's a role which the Church has taken on itself, uh, encouraged by uh, the late Queen, of course, in a very important statement that she made in a speech uh, with which you'll be familiar at the beginning of her golden jubilee in... Uh, February uh, 2012, Mm. where she spoke of uh, the church being there to support, as it were, all religions and not, therefore, entirely preoccupied with its own status.
0: Just thinking of the visuals, the aesthetics of the coronation, and certainly in 1953 and what we'll anticipate in 2023 what did it look like and what do we think it will look like this time how 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 might it evolve and change just in its in the optics
1: yes well I, the word the first of calls uh, occurs to me is imperial it was the last imperial hurrah there were you know large numbers of troops uh, from the dominions as they were then called and from the uh, british overseas territories um, India alone didn't send uh, troops, um, though it had done so in 1937. But, of course, that was under a regime was controlled by Britain. <laughs> and the uh, Indian Empire, of course, had disappeared only six years before the coronation. Um, it was a vast visual spectacle. It was uh, glamorous. It was extremely colourful. Um, and one has to remember how dowdy a place uh, Britain still was in 1952-3, after the uh, Second World War. I can remember taking part in the coronation parade in in Birmingham uh, with my Mm -hmm. combined air force. And uh, we started off, the the forming up point was an old bomb site, which was being used as a a parking lot for one of the central cinemas. And there were still bomb sites in Birmingham at the time. Identity cards had only disappeared in 1952. Um, Rationing still existed. It was finally got rid of in 1954. But there are all these sort of uh, privations still apparent in one way or another. And the coronation came in the middle of that. And it was a vast uplift because there was this young woman... um, who uh, nobody knew anything about because she didn't give interviews. was quite right, her mother did so any once, never again. <laughs> and um, one could uh, pin on her any expectation and hope that uh, you require, talk about the new Elizabethan age and all that. And it was also televised, so it was accessible. I remember squinting at a 10-inch television in you know, <laughs> my home. And uh, this, was, this was a novel experience for most people, of course. And it engaged the population in a way which had never been possible in, in the past, only retrospectively in film and so on and so forth. And so that was a vast change, and um, it lightened uh, the mood, I think, very considerably. It also brought people together, the coronation parties and so on. I'm looking forward to the street party <laughs> in my part of <laughs> and, <laughs> um So it was great tonic.
0: And do you think those that have coronets will put their coronets on at the moment of crowning?
1: Well, we shall see.
0: (laughs) Uh, Also, we'll have to see what the king will wear. There's quite a lot of speculation about that because Mm -hmm. if he's going to wear military uniform, anointing his breast is going to be rather tricky for the Archbishop of Canterbury. We'll await that with interest and whether we'll be able to see anything of that this time. Could we just look at the regalia? Because it fascinates me um, as to quite what it is. It's very ancient, but uh, a lot of it seems rather unspiritual. Not to mention, I think, there's the use of four swords.
1: Uh, Could you talk us through the four swords? Well, I'm not sure I can distinguish them uh, without (laughs) a a crib, as it were. But yes, there are the swords, and they symbolise authority and power. Um, mostly, of course, temporal power. Um, And, uh, of course, most of the items used uh, nowadays are not old and not ancient uh, because they were sold off or melted down by Cromwell after 1649. Um, The oldest piece is probably the ampulla and the spoon, uh, which is uh, interestingly divided down the middle so uh, the celebrant can... uh, dip two fingers in the oil, as it were, conveniently. Um, but that's probably from the 12th century, the late 12th century either. Um, uh, probably Richard, I, but no one's quite sure about that. Um, and it, the crowns, of course, have great uh, s- um, signifying power. Um, they represent the supreme authority, um, but it's a supreme authority that is, um, emanates from... The, the, the spiritual side of uh, society, and it uh, is an authority which is reminded that it is answerable to a higher authority, something which, of course, is reflected in the modern modern-day service, that is, the business of humility and care. Um, so these items which have been collected at various points I mean, uh, the mills, I think will later addition, I don't know how you'd fit those over a naval, <laughs> naval uniform so we look forward to, to this with great interest, perhaps uh, the signification will be simplified on the next occasion we shall yes, see
0: Yes, I'm fascinated by the, the term, the, the sword of oblation and the redemption of the sword of oblation yes. that takes place. It comes from the altar and is handed to the yeah. um, monarch who then returns it to Indeed. the altar. And it's yes. ironic, really, that a, an instrument of destruction, potentially potentially, uh, is, is, is doing that. And yet it also stands for the cross. There are so many yes, different absolutely. things in, invested absolutely. in one symbol. Yes.
1: And it's uh, typically, I mean, uh, everyone takes their own, thing away from the coronation, I think. Um, And uh, it would be very interesting to see what the reactions are to the coronation on the next occasion.
0: Your papers, which I I really do commend to people because they're so well written and very interesting, document very clearly the decay of Christian belief and observance since 1953. I mean, they're quite shocking figures, the reduction in the number of confirmations and baptisms and church weddings in that time, and the trajectory is heading Steeply downhill. Um, what are the implications of, of these statistics for the Church of England's constitutional status?
1: Well, um, in a sense, um, they have no implications at all because the church is still there, <laughs> and it's uh, not impoverished. Uh, it's difficult to maintain um, a full fleet, as it were, of clergy. But I mean, it's it's coping. Um, and it's, its services on offer of population are still there. But of course they are much um, reduced. And um, the notion of the partnership with the, the Crown, as it were, the government of the day, is much diminished. And what I spoke of earlier when we were talking about the joint project of governance, that, is, that no longer exists. Um, except in vestigial form for example the 26 bishops who still sit in the House House of Lords Um, and uh, it seems um, probably that uh, they will stay there although there's nothing to stop them leaving um, until there's some larger reform of the Second Chamber if that can ever be agreed upon and (laughs) acted on Uh, I'm not (laughs) holding my breath on
0: that (laughs) And and with that in mind, how do you think the coronation rite could and should change in 2023?
1: What are the, the things you're hoping might? Yes, well, I, I think it'd probably be clearer on its religious forms. I mean, there are bits of it, like the homage, for example, which has absolutely got nothing to do with uh, the church at all. Or religion, uh, but it's one of the medieval hangovers. Of course the magnates came, you know, they were the biggest landlords in the land. And of course they were going to go through an oath of fealty to the monarch in his capacity as the crown king. Um, but it, it really, I, I can't believe that it has a, a, a modern resonance unless the nature of it is changed. Uh, one of the options we'd suggested, which had also been suggested by one of the past deans of uh, the Abbey, was that there might be a separate, entirely secular occasion where civil society, as it were, in a larger sense, um, uh, engaged with the new king, uh, not in an act of homage, but, I mean, in a, um, a hand, an act of contact, of uh, uh, recognition somehow, um, i I don't see that going to happen i mean if if it was going to happen, we'd have heard about it yes. um so uh, but I notice that it's very unclear what the nature of the composition of the congregation will be, and it's not impossible, I think that that the new king might wish to reflect that idea somehow in the congregation that is assembled for his coronation um some sign of presence for civil society. The little platoons that make our democracy work. I understand that the
0: homage was actually a later addition. I mean, it's not Dunstan didn't insert it. Yeah. I think it came in the thirteenth century. So, yes. well, uh, there
1: weren't many notables in the ninth century. <laughs> <laughs> so, there was a small committee called the Witten. Yes,
0: <laughs> maybe. Um, are there any reasons you think which could lead this coronation
1: to being the last? Well, it depends on the continuation of the the monarchy, of course. Um, uh, This is much misunderstood. We are actually a republic, of course, which we happen to have an hereditary head of state. That delivers an impartial ruler, and that is a very valuable thing, and sometimes much envied by other people who understand what the arrangement is. Um, And, uh, of course, the difference is, uh, one can say that England... Uh, looks like a monarchy but is a republic. France looks like a republic but is actually a monarchy with an executive head of state. That's very different. Some people voted for him, a lot of people didn't. And it's impossible for him to uh, uh, um, uh, act in impartial space because he is always a politician first and foremost. Similarly, the Constitution of the United States produces a temporary um, tenanted king. Bob,
0: thank you so much for taking us through these several very important constitutional questions. And I think we all await with great interest what, what we will eventually be seeing on the 6th of May. But thank you so much for coming. So Anders, we've uh, been into uncharted territory for us so far. <laughs> what are your reactions first
2: of all? Well, f- first of all, I was absolutely fascinated by by that, and I learned so much which I'd I'd not known. Um, perhaps one thing which came up. Uh, early on which struck me was the number of different planning centres if you can call them that involved in putting a coronation together because I was was always aware that the Dean of Westminster and Westminster Abbey is one centre of planning and that's an institution that has a great deal of autonomy and then there's Lambeth Palace and the Archbishop of Canterbury because clearly it is in some sense the Archbishop's right uh, he's the one who who does does the business to the king, um, but uh, then you've also got uh, government being involved, uh, and I hadn't appreciated uh, quite uh, how important it is for them to to have a role through the civil service, um, and then of course you've got the royal household itself, and bringing all of that together into a single planning. Uh, process over quite a short period, I mean not many months from the uh, decease of the previous monarch in September of last year through to a coronation in May of, of this year that's a formidable planning challenge quite,
0: quite. Uh, I think they all need our prayers, and as this is a Church of England broadcast, we will certainly include them in the state prayers. Uh, What about the oath, Anderson?
2: Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? Um, I mean, again, very, very helpful to have the three oaths so clearly explained. Um, I was, uh, uh, my ears pricked up at the... Uh, what was being said there about the uh, last third of the coronation oath, this oath to uphold all the privileges of the Church of England. And um, that clearly is something that does need to be needs a bit of rewriting in the present context, and it sounded as if there isn't a mechanism by which it can be significantly rewritten before May. Uh, so you and I, um, Anglican clergy out in our parishes, are probably going to have to uh, deal with a certain amount of flack from people in our communities who are wondering why the Church of England seems to be privileged in this special way.
0: It may just reconnect us with people as they they see what a unique role we have in society. I would, I would hope so. <laughs> Maybe that's a vain hope. And what about the idea of us being um, a, a republic with a hereditary head of state?
2: <laughs> well, absolutely spot on. I, I suppose the other thing about the head of state is that I mean, he provides a, a, ch- a person in whose name all sorts of things can be done. So there's a great sort of symbolic unification of all sorts of things that the... the, 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 the King clearly doesn't choose the bishops of the Church of England, uh, but uh, fictitiously he formally uh, they they are they are non well formally the the chapters have to elect the people that uh, the crown the crown places the the right name before them, um, and that uh, that kind of symbolic thing uh, here's the bishop providing sound religion sorry here's the king providing sound religion for the people of england through providing the people of england with bishops and here's the king providing a sound government by uh, causing there to be parliaments and here's the king providing for the security of his people by you know causing there to be an army and commissioning people in it. All that's rather helpful. Um, I love the observation about the French electing a monarch um, or the Americans electing a monarch um, with a a short-term tenure of four or five years. Of course, that means that in those countries you have to have the equivalent of a coronation every four or five years. Maybe our our system here is simply cheaper, among other things.
0: And an execution of the previous one, even. Yes,
2: yes, yes, indeed. (laughs) But I've got a question for you, because you know everything about coronations. <laughs> what are armills, and the, what are they for? I think this is
0: one of the very, very confusing bits of the, the vesture. It's where vesture and regalia meet. I am pretty sure that the armills are not really regalia and jewellery. They, they were a form of uh, cloth... Um, cuff that was added as as uh, as part of the oh, vesting, like,
2: like the cuffs that Orthodox bishops have.
0: Absolutely right. Yes. Uh, and and then this was misunderstood when the regalia was remade in 1661. Beautifully, I have to say, most of the crown jewels are exquisitely made. But this was a misunderstanding, and instead of making um, a vestment, effectively, they made a bracelet or a pair of bracelets for King Charles II, which have been used since until 1953 when the Queen was presented with a new pair of armills, very handsomely made as well, and, I th- um, uh, uh, and given by the peoples of the Commonwealth. But they looked very
2: fine on her. Uh, I, I, whether they'll fit on the King, I don't know. Maybe new armills have been commissioned, or maybe there will be no armills at all. We shall wait and see.
0: Thank you for listening. In our next episode, we will be talking to Peter McGeary as we explore the musical inheritance of the coronation.